Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 32, Occidentosis. Well, for uh, those teachers out there, we are nearing the end of the semester. Uh, Chris and I believe are both pretty much done, with, except for the grading. How are you feeling about the end of this semester, Chris? You know, it's going to be a, a photo finish <laughs> uh, for lots of, <laughs> lots of educators uh, and probably students, too. You know, it's really been a semester like any other, wouldn't you say? I mean, yeah, totally. It just, I mean, obviously insane for so many so many reasons. Uh, I, I, my final was due last night. I made it at midnight, basically. And so I stayed up to make sure there was no problems right till the end. And I got a flurry of emails, you know, at like 1159 uh, and 12.01, by the way. And uh, just, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I'm, I'm used to that. I usually do uh, finals online, that kind of thing. But um, just the, the reasons, like the, the things the, teach, the students were talking about. I had one student who's every single member of her family got COVID. So she was taking care of everybody mm-hmm. and just like the, the end of the semester was a mess. And I had students who were working multiple jobs and, you know, trying to take care of kids and just, um, it's hard not to be compassionate. It's hard not to be, uh, uh, tolerant at this, at this point in this, in this world. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it really changed the way I think about how I teach and, and how I relate to students and hopefully with some things that can live on into future semesters as well. There's no reason you can't be compassionate even when there's not a pandemic, I guess, is my, my takeaway from this. Oh, I'd hate to think that, you know, we return to the uh, proverbial normal at some point and not have learned anything. Yes. You know, in other words, that it's just the status quo, you know, uh, from before. Uh, yeah, and I, I had my first uh, coronavirus student uh, here in the last week or so, although she was actually getting in touch with me, kind of coming out on the healing side mm-hmm. of it. She had already been af- afflicted and her whole family basically uh, and and was apologizing, you know, for, for work oh, yeah, she yeah. had turned in. Uh, and you had mentioned that in an earlier episode. You know, we have these, um, you know, terribly taxing, you know, conditions and people are under duress and, and they, you know, tend to be, I guess, because they've been conditioned, you know, by the system, as it were, to, uh, you know, somehow, um, you know, apologize for for these, these you know, this global pandemic yes. befalling their, their them. own but, failure not to I'm get like, sick in a global pandemic. Right. Right. You know, and, and in a country, nonetheless, that has been, you know, largely heedless. So it's not as if there's a huge wellspring of support there for folks to, you know, to avoid getting sick or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. People are struggling to keep it together. I think, you know, uh, teachers, educators, uh, probably uh, administrators uh, alike, you know. Um, and so I, I, you know, you and I were talking, I, I sort of undertook a new uh, a new dialogue you know with with my students where you know you figure after 33 years of this josh you know and and having come up through what we'll call the old school Mm -hmm. you know uh, you learn pretty quick though when you're in a community college you're dealing with you know myriad life issues and folks who are, are really fighting the good fight to try to get their education so 
you know, I, I, I would say that I have long since, you know, abandoned that kind of, uh, you know, that old school sort of tough love kind of approach because you realize pretty quickly it just doesn't it just doesn't settle well. But, you know, this really was quite a different experience. And I found much of my focus, you know, in, in finishing here, kind of shifting from that of historian, you know, and an educator to, you know, sort of tapping into that part of my personality, I guess, that was, you know, more uh, directly, uh, you know, empathetic or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, what my daughters would describe as my NorCal hippie logger dude <laughs> persona, you know, where I felt like most of my communications suddenly were, you know, that of a new age life coach, right. you know, not so much of a, you know, a historian. Or a college basketball coach. <laughs> you're not throwing chairs like, well, you, like know, you used to, but now you're uh, gently setting the players yeah. down in their chair. Well, I, you know, absolutely. And saying things like, you know, uh, listen, you know, we're going to get through this together and <laughs> yeah. just talk to me about the things that have interested you this semester. You know, let it be a, a kind of constructive uh, way to distract yourself from from all these other issues, you know. So just basically, it's just rap about history and life and, yeah. and health and your soul and oh man, like, I, I know you were saying it's that weird the content that, of your emails has yeah. radically changed. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that uh, you know, any of my emails would stay self, stay safe and healthy. You mm -hmm. know, I, I think like twenty-five-year-old me would have looked at that and just wanted to slap the forty-five-year-old me in the face. <laughs> but I mean, it's legit. Like I legitimately want my students to stay safe and, and healthy, and I guess that should always be the case. But but particularly now, where uh, you know they in particular there's so much pressure on them to to be out in the world and continue to you know we were so lucky as we've noted before to have these jobs where we can stay safely at home and still earn a paycheck and do what we love and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff but that is not the condition for most of our students um so i mean it legitimately you know it's important to remind them that the, the most important thing is being safe and being healthy and you know stuff like grades and and you know the, the student i was saying that um her entire family had covid she was such a great student for the first half of the semester and then just, you know, wasn't able to get stuff in the second half. And so she was freaking out. And I just said, well, you're a B student, you know, you at least a B student. That's basically a high B at the end of the semester. That's no reason to think you wouldn't have done that well for the rest of the semester. So how about I just give you a B <laughs> for the semester? It's like, oh, yeah, we, I think you're the one who told you, who clued me into that idea. We can do mm -hmm. that. We can just <laughs> say you got to be in the class because you're a B mm -hmm. student. Um, the points might not add up quite as, as it should, but it's perfectly legitimate. And, uh, you know, again, like obviously we're in these extraordinary circumstances, but, but we can, in, we can always do that. Even if the circumstances are not as insane as they are now. Exactly. You know, we had started that conversation as a department, even before the pandemic, you know, as we were looking at, at right, equity yeah. issues and the, you know, the wicked problem as they call it of, of, you know, disproportionately impacted, uh, failure rates or, or non-success rates, you know, of, of certain, you know, demographics uh, that is uh, continue to, you know, um, fall below, say, the, you know, the pass rates of those students who, you know, th through traditional, say, privilege, you know, uh, preparation approach to education, you know, have, have higher pass rates. And so, 
uh, as a department, you know, I mean, as historians, we teach about inequity, we teach about social class inequities and racial and ethnic uh, disparities and such. Mm-hmm. But in confronting that in our own classrooms, you know, we had to seriously examine, you know, the system, as it were, and how the system often sets up to preserve those inequities, not to not to alleviate them, you know, to to maintain them. And so as we look now in this current uh, setting, you know, I can't imagine going back really, Josh, to, again, the status quo, you know, uh, say pre-epidemic or pre-pandemic rather, uh, and falling back on those systems of scoring and assessment and uh, evaluation. And and the thing that always, you know, for me at least, that always kind of kept us, you know, from doing that you know, even even sooner was this idea. Well, you're you're watering something down. You're cheap. You're cheapening without without really coming to terms with the fact that no, that that's not the alternative. You know, the alternative isn't either have a bad system that is prejudicial yeah. towards certain uh, groups, let's say, or uh, on the other hand, water it all down so it doesn't mean anything. You know, if if anything, what we've learned and as we've discussed on our episodes of of late in, in history against the grain is that, you know, we're sold a bill of goods about these systems, be they political, legal, economic, or in our case, educational, and how they set up a kind of measure, uh, a measuring criteria that was mm-hmm. itself faulty in some basic way. So when you, when you say, you know, look, you're a B student, yeah, nobody knows that better than you do. You're, you're the instructor of record. You're the trained professional whose job it is to make these kinds of assessments. But imagine finding yourself, you know, in, in locked into a systemic straitjacket yeah. where knowing that nevertheless gave way to some formal what's quant- quantifiable, you know, metric of performance that ended up, you know, under evaluating that particular student. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, no, that I mean, that's that's more harmful, right? Than yeah, than any of the supposed harm of, of <laughs> just making up the grade <laughs> uh, without the quantitative basis. And, you know, I liked what you're saying about um you know that the fear that we're we're getting rid of the rigor of these classes if we if we don't grade in the traditional way but you know the, the other part of that is and i think you're, you're getting this as well that the systems themselves are self-reinforcing right that so mm-hmm. you know we know that grades are important whether or not we individually believe grades are important we know that the system believes grades are important and so if you don't take grades uh seriously for your students then your students are not gonna be able to fit into the system that thinks these grades are are significant and you get in this trap of trying to uh trying to do everything right you're stuck in this middle where you're using a system you don't believe in because the system exists and the students need to exist in that system and and so maybe the best the best option is just you know what what we were talking about you just assign grades based on this is what the student is capable of doing um you know and there's problems there certainly you gotta but but like you're saying we're, we're with these students for, for a semester we know how they uh, perform we know how well they understand some of them are better at, at talking about history some of them are better at writing about history but there's room for a wide set of skills as opposed to just the the set of skills that have been rewarded traditionally in in, in these systems so um yeah that's yeah. right yeah and and listen you know we're used to these static categories you know like you say right. of 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 talking about or writing about but you know what often was the case in in the system you know, was writing was the five paragraph essay, you know, Um, and they were supposed to have learned the mechanics of that from their English teachers. And then we were supposed to be able to, you know, sort of co-opt that format into some kind of, let's say, history essay. But, you know, I'm I'm married to an English 
teacher, you know, and I've, I've kidded her over the years because she was actually hip to all this stuff way before I was, mm-hmm. is that, you know, as someone once said, the only time you're ever going to write a five paragraph essay with an introduction, conclusion, transition sentences and thesis statement <laughs> is in that English class or maybe the history class where some yeah. other smart aleck thinks that's what the standard measure should be. So, you know, instead of leaning on those static categories of what it means to write, let's say, you know, again, the, the alternative is not, you know, some kind of bedlam, some kind of chaos of, of communication. It, but it is to understand the ways we create um, these static categories that don't actually apply to the world we live in, you know, and the way that students will, in fact, have to communicate in their lives as they go through jobs and and relationships and all manner of, you know, personal and, and uh, professional circumstances, you know, and so uh as we look at these static categories and we seek ways to free them you know from their uh, kind of artificial restraints i think we learn more about the system that has you know done a lot to condition us even as educators too yeah i mean that's that's really important and, and you kind of see the way that you know we technically have authority in the classroom right and they mm-hmm. students i mean traditionally right students are subject to the, our authority mm-hmm. um but it's it's important to understand that that in that context, both the authorities and those subject to the authority are also all caught up in the same system in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. That we're, we're all kind of limited by the system that, that bounds us in some ways. And um, it's much easier for us to break out of that than it is for the, s- the students to break out of that. So, you know, it really is on us more than it is on them to create right. new models that, that um, you know, if they don't defeat the s- system, at least they can kind of undermine the self-importance of the system and, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, point out the degree to which, as we've talked so much about on this podcast, this stuff is all is all constructed. I was looking at a, a do you know the band Fugazi? Are you, sure. Yeah. So I, there's a song called Bulldog Front on, on one of their albums, and the first line is ahistorical, which I never knew. I just happened to look at the lyrics today, but I I, I always thought it was it's totally cool. <laughs> so I just oh, happened wow. to look at the lyrics. I just happened to look at the lyrics today, and, and the, the the first line of the song is ahistorical. You think this shit just dropped right out of the sky. And it, it oh, just, nice. you know, it's exactly what we were just talking about, that, the, you know, we have this, this, this sense that these systems, these traditions are just there because they just dropped right out of the sky. But we have to understand, you know, obviously in history, this has been such a, a focus of what we've been talking about. This stuff is all constructed. But, um, you know, within our contemporary world, you know, with the, the way that all these, these kind of individual interactions work, so much of that is um, built on, on a bunch of assumptions that, there's no reason we should we should be following necessarily, so uh, yeah, it's, oh, I like it's that historical. A lot. Yeah, and I, I hope that, that that therefore that Fugazi song can be our our bridge into the next segment. Uh, if you can make that happen, mix master. Well, I actually I actually have a different Fugazi song. The reason I was looking at the lyrics, <laughs> I chose a different Fugazi song for another segment. So uh, oh, you're like the old we, DJs who wouldn't take requests. I, I don't know. know. Respect. Man. Hey, I got plans. <laughs> I got a system here, and you're gonna you're gonna live within my system. All right. Well, we'll have to make the bridge then uh, another way, because uh, what we want to talk about now is is how these systems then again have um, some serious need of, of new diagnosis.
You know, thanks for that that bridge. Uh, it it reminds me, you know, that it, I spent a lot of my time in the last few years living in the in the South Bay Area, driving up to Sacramento uh, as a kind of a freeway flyer, you know, um, like a lot of Northern Californians do uh, to commute. Uh, to their various jobs and such from where they live. And I spent a lot of time as a result, you know, listening to, to radio uh, in uh, all its various guises these days, uh, including uh, occasionally uh, national public radio. And, and as I was making the commute recently, even though we've been in quarantine, I found myself in, in Sacramento and was, was driving back to the Bay Area. Uh, resuming that that routine, listening to uh, something on NPR, they were they were discussing a book, Josh, by uh, an author, Brittany Barnett, who's an African American woman, uh, has published a book uh, that sort of details her uh, efforts in recent years as an attorney. Uh, she's principally an attorney uh, in trying to uh, get um, the wrongs of the past where drug sentencing, federal drug sentencing uh, was concerned, the, uh, the harsh uh, mandated uh, drug sentencing guidelines that judges now have been using ever since the 90s, really the late 80s. Uh, and it has resulted in the disproportionate incarceration of people of color, particularly uh, black and brown people uh, and women, uh, as it turns out. And so as a legal advocate, she uh, explained uh, how she just literally typed into Google one day, women with life sentences, and uh, to see what would come up. And much as she suspected might happen is that she suddenly found herself staring at the profiles of uh, women, black and brown women, who had been sentenced under these draconian, as she calls them, dr draconian federal um, drug sentencing guidelines. Uh, in some cases, given life sentences um, for crimes that under other circumstances would have merited no more than, say, a, a single digit, you know, years of sentencing, uh, certainly well short of the kind of draconian sentences she was finding. So she made it her, her cause, if you will, as, as a young attorney to begin working on these um, these cases and and her book uh, now that is is uh, is published, which was the focus of the discussion, is called "A Knock at Midnight." A knock at midnight, a story of hope, justice, and and freedom, in uh, which she tells all these compelling tales, including, by the way, that of her own mother, who was sentenced to to prison under these same guidelines um, and spent uh, many years before uh, finding rehabilitation. And, you know, the interviewer uh, said, well, gee, don't don't you want to say then that being in federal prison is what saved your mother? And, and you know, Ms. Barnett said, no, absolutely not. What saved my mother was, um, you know, addictive substance um, treatment. Uh, and she could have gotten that anywhere. She didn't have to be in a federal prison to get that right. And so uh, the book itself shines a much uh, needed light, you might say, on just how, what is extraordinary injustice. Uh, those those laws were established in the sort of heyday of the crack cocaine epidemic, as the media termed it back in the 80s and in the 90s, the uh, the 94 crime bill, which created mandatory minimums and those kinds of things that have really resulted in a, in a great miscarriage of justice. And so Ms. Barnett, uh, not only has she succeeded 
in using the federal uh, presidential clemency uh, provision, for example, to get many of these women uh, released. But now, again, has written a book to draw attention to why these uh, laws need to be changed. And in many cases, they have, although not retroactively. So right. folks who were originally sentenced, you know, like the principal case she uses is of a woman from Texas who was convicted of of carrying powder cocaine uh, on behalf of two drug traffickers that had hired her to do this. And her her lawyer um, was an appointed defense attorney, told her to plead not uh, guilty to the charge, which under the federal uh, court um, procedure then allowed the two traffickers to reduce their sentences by testifying against her. That is the person they had in effect paid to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and in most instances, you would think that that is the lesser crime. That is the person who's just you know carrying the drugs, not the person who are trafficking them for sale. But in her case, the, the client of, of, of Brittany Barnett, um, she was sentenced under these guidelines because what the judge did is decided to make an example out of her for her refusal to plead guilty to a lesser charge by uh, using the um, conspiracy, federal conspiracy guidelines to say that the powder cocaine she was carrying would have been manufactured likely into crack cocaine. She herself being black, it was understood that she would have been taking this to black neighborhoods in Texas where she lived and therefore they would have been repackaging this and processing uh, the powder as crack cocaine, as rock cocaine. And because of the so-called 500 to one guideline, that is uh, per unit, uh, crack cocaine was deemed to be 500 times more punitive, if you will, than the equivalent one unit of powder cocaine. She was given a life sentence. And so she was the first uh, that Brittany Barnett was able to get released uh, when Obama still president under the uh, presidential clemency law. Um, so all of this. Yeah, well, first of all, let me give you a chance to talk. What uh, you know, what do you think about all that? Well, it's insane, especially the stuff about how, you know, we're now in the process of reforming some of these drug laws. Marijuana in a lot of states is now at least decriminalized, if not legal. Mm -hmm. um, and yet people still rot in prison for these nonviolent crimes that, um, you know, did, if any, you know, real damage to the society. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's kind of this bigger issue where we really see drug laws in particular are so, so racially based, um, you know, that a, a white person caught with marijuana is often just going to get a, a, you know, tap on the arm, whereas people of color, you know, with the same crime are going to get prison time. And as you, you're noting here, often, you know, extraordinary amounts of prison time for mm -hmm. these nonviolent offenses. So, you know, as, as good as it is that we're beginning to finally look at these laws and, and start to change them, it to, to really, I mean, this is the story of this country, right? That you, you commit these crimes against various people. And then at a certain point, you decide not to commit those crimes any longer, but there's no reparation, right? There's no, there's no, right. uh, there's no reward for for those who suffered under the, the old system. So, you know, we just keep doing this and keep doing this. And, and, and uh, it, it doesn't solve, you know, it solves some things, but it also uh, doesn't reduce the iniquities that have been in place for so long. No, it doesn't. And, you know, in the case of, of crack, I guess it's fairly under, well understood now that this was all part of the kind of racial panic you know, mm -hmm. of, of the Reagan era 1980s, you know, when you had Nancy Reagan, 
you know, being given this assignment to somehow talk the nation's cool kids out of drug use <laughs> by just saying no. And, you know, this incredibly performative and kind of patronizing approach to, you know, a problem in this country really begun during the Vietnam War. And I mean, it goes deep, right? But right. the idea that somehow crack cocaine was more insidious, well, what it was was less expensive. And so more, mm -hmm. you know, people living below the poverty line, living in, you know, predominantly urban areas, let's say, you know, as, as part of racial or ethnic communities could afford it. You know, the people who were most likely to either be underemployed or unemployed and living in generational poverty, you know, finding a highly addictive substance. You know, Brittany Bodnett's mother herself was actually a nurse, a professional nurse who, you know, was was ta started taking cocaine to, to keep, you know, body and soul together after double shifts, you know, of working yeah. at the hospital and trying to provide as a single mother for her daughter and rent and all that kind of stuff. And and in the, in the hands of white legislators, including our current president-elect uh, uh, and, and the 94 crime bill, you know, all of this was put through a prism of, you know, political evangelism that somehow made these crimes far more serious than if you had been, let's say, an upscale white New York City stockbroker, you know, buying powder, the more expensive powder cocaine. You're, you know, you're, your infraction was seen as somehow less onerous, less injurious, and thus you probably received, a, even if a prison sentence at all, because you could afford better counsel, legal counsel, and all that kind of stuff you know, probably got away either scot-free or close to it. And so, yeah, and look, you know, whether it's talking about students, you know, earning grades and, you know, disproportionately, we're talking about systems here, be it educational system, legal system, policing systems, for example, um, in this case, the so-called war on drugs that created a, a, a sort of, you know, newly, um, you know, militant policing and sentencing that, that it's actually promoted you know, in the political sphere as progress, you know, because mm -hmm. you have these, you know, America has, you know, a quarter of the world's prison population, Josh, you know, but that that gets trumpeted, you know, in, in the political sphere as, you know, in, what evidence of how good a job the system is doing. Right. I mean, it's 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 just like the grade thing, right, that that you have this this quantitative way of, of measuring success, but is it's not really necessarily measuring that success at all, right? right. It's, it's measuring the way the system has functioned to protect the system in, in some ways um, to keep yeah. things as they are. But um, yeah, you can look at the you know, number of arrests. And you look, but I mean, even beyond that, you can look at the number of arrests, but I, I think you know, municipality after municipality, you find that the police are actually terrible at like, closing murder cases. There's so many open murder cases. They're not really good at solving that that many crimes, but they are very, very good at arresting lots and lots of people. It seems, um, and, and and drugs are such an easy way to do that because it's this thing that the the possession of them in you know in itself is is a crime, and therefore uh, if you have possession, then it also opens opens up the right to uh, search cars and search bodies and search houses mm -hmm. and to discover more you know quote unquote crimes. Mm -hmm. I just saw this thing uh, recently that. Uh, law enforcement has taken more stuff from people than burglars. <laughs> that, that this is like a, a just repeating year after year that law enforcement takes more for, from asset for, forfeiture than all the burglaries in the country mm. in any given year. Um, mm. You know, but one thing's considered a crime, and one thing is considered just part of this this law and order system that mm -hmm. that's in place. Um, and, and drugs are so much a big part of that because that's one of the key uh, you know ways that you can get into somebody's house. One of the key reasons why you, the, uh, people have to forfeit their assets and one of the key reasons the police departments get to seize those assets in the first place. Yeah, and you get this strange phenomenon of sort of criminalizing certain behaviors that aren't 
maybe even literally defined as crimes. You know, Brittany Barnett's mother came out of prison still addicted, basically, because she hadn't received any substance abuse um, counseling or treatment in her first stint in prison. And so she was subject to regular blood tests uh, with her parole officer, uh, which turned up positive because she was still, you know, doing crack. which wouldn't have been a crime ordinarily. I mean, the crime was you you produce crack, you transport it, you traffic it, you sell it. Mm-hmm. But taking it wasn't itself a crime, amazingly enough, except because she was on parole, they sent her back to prison for failing her, her uh, you know, her blood tests. So, right. you know, and I guess the analogy here would, you know, in, in education be sort of, you know, at one point, you know, uh, you know, whether you're a university, community college, what have you, high school, you know, which got into the metrics of student performance, you know, that became very popular in the 90s. You know, if you could show that you were actually failing a lot of students, that meant that you were an institution of rigor and high mm-hmm. standards and, you know, this sort of notion, this conceit that that all really showed, you know, just how, because it, it was so punitive, just how successful it, <laughs> you know, yeah, really was. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> So here's what I think we can do, because the the point that, you know, occurred to me as I was driving home listening to Brittany Barnett's story was, you know, my God, listen, uh, you know, if if we were to evaluate our country, our nation, our systems, you know, from some some, um, you know, neutral uh, perspective, let's say, you know, um, from outside the system, in other words, uh, you know, it seems like one of the first questions that, that might be asked of such a, you know, an evaluation would be, well, you know, how, how successful are your people? You know, and, and if the answer was going to be, well, gee, we have a quarter of the world's prison population, you know, in mm-hmm. the United States, then I, I'm guessing in the pro and con column, that would definitely go down in the neutral observer's mind as a, as a, a mark against the United States, wouldn't you say? And and yet, because of this kind of bewildering treatment of it, it was often, you know, actually part of a proud boast that, well, we have that many prisoners because, you know, we're doing such a good job at enforcing, you know, law and order or something. So it got mm. kind of turned on its head. But I think, you know, as, as I was listening to Brittany Barnett, clearly this would be uh, a failing grade, you know, not a, uh, a passing grade for the country. And so it, it, it sort of came into my mind that, you know, you could go down the list of things and, and uh, what we'll call fun facts, okay? Fun <laughs> facts about America in a game that I'm going to call On the Other Hand. Are you game? You want to do this? I'm in. Okay. Yeah, this is our this is our thing now. We play games in the show. It's a it's purely fun. This 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 show now. It's not not depressing anymore. It's right? All good fun. Yep. We're we're gonna laugh, not cry. I tell you. <laughs> uh, so here it is. Here's sort of the good news, bad news. You know, uh, on, on this hand, but on the other hand. So Josh, I looked up some of these statistics, and you can find them pretty readily online. Did you know, for example, the United States of America has a hundred one hundred ninety one thousand five hundred eleven fast food restaurants. That's good. Job, job creation, right? Um, you know, Empl- opportunity Empl- for employment, uh, opportunity yeah. for uh, social mobility for the franchise owners. Yeah, that's that's a very positive stat, I would say. Absolutely. And plenty to eat, right? Yes. Plenty to eat with 191,000 fast food restaurants. Uh, but on the other hand, Josh, did you know there were 16.2 million hungry children on average per year in the United States? Mm-hmm. Apparently that food's not coming through that drive-up window. For 16.2 million children. 
what do we call that? Want in the sight of plenty, I think we call that, right? Yeah, uh, you know, if you want to kind of take it outward, you know, I like to do in this global perspective, you know, how many countries in the world are called agricultural or agrarian countries? And yet virtually every agrarian country has to import wheat from uh, from the United States. So, you know, even the, these, these countries that are supposed to be, uh, their main occupation is growing stuff. Uh, they're still having to buy their food from the United States, a country which, by the way, as you noted, has uh, 16 plus million hungry hungry kids every mm-hmm. every year. So Hungry children, that's right. Well, look, maybe we can get a, a check mark in the pro column this time when I tell you that in California, you know, there's 80,000 new houses built a year on average. That's 80,000 new houses. That's got to be a, a bragging point, isn't it? Yeah, that's why uh, home prices are so cheap in California because we have so much supply of, of housing, right? <laughs> hey, hey, straight man, you're not supposed to take my uh, my punchline, okay? Sorry. <laughs> okay, so we got 80,000 new houses, but on the other hand, but on the other hand, we got a half million half million homeless people. A half million homeless people. You want to explain that one to me? No, I mean, it's, it's so apparent if you just drive around California, like every, seems like every underpass now um, has a homeless encampment, um, unhoused mm-hmm. encampment. Um, it's it's always been visible in California. It, it pretty clearly and, and, and visibly is getting is getting worse, even, you know, in, in a state where there's so much wealth created, uh, so many wealthy people, so many houses being built. Um, and I think there's a stat as well about the number of, of those houses that are unoccupied. Um, and so, you know, how many tens of thousands of houses are unoccupied, how many millions of houses are unoccupied, um, and how many people don't have a house is uh, is another kind of check in the maybe not so great category for, for mm-hmm. this one. Yeah, and as you pointed out, uh, and we might as well say it, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of houses available, but, you know, on the other hand, the median home price in California is now $700,000, yeah. 700000 Okay, well, we're in a pandemic, so we got to find a, a silver lining, I would think, here somewhere. You know, I mean, put it in the pro column. We have a lot of doctors in this country. That's good, right? 950,000 practicing medical doctors in the United States. Sounds like a lot. Yeah, we're in good shape there, aren't we? That's uh, why our healthcare system works, yeah. Well, it sure does, you know, but on the other hand... <laughs> I hope your pencil has an eraser on it. <laughs> on the other hand, there's 27 and a half million Americans with no health insurance. Mm-hmm. Lots of doctors and patients that can't afford to see them. Well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to see the bright side of this. If, if all those people had health insurance, then you need even more doctors, right? So uh, we got to keep the, the supply and the, and the need even. Is that, is that positive? <laughs> and we, we don't have enough doctors to uh, to treat all the people who would have health care if we had an actual health care system. All that theoretical health care we have? Yeah. Yeah, I don't see why not. Uh, and listen, if, if you're thinking about going into medicine, we don't want to discourage you because, you know, doctors can do all right for themselves. You know, I actually looked up the stats on the, on the country's wealthiest doctors, and it was mm-hmm. no surprise to find that uh, Bill Frist, who used to be a senator from Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. You know, is 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 a well-known. I think I want to say maybe heart surgeon or something. Okay. Uh, and he was listed near the top. He's he's worth six point three. Uh, I want to say six point three billion dollars. Mr. Frist, wow. Doctor Frist is. And so, well, sure, maybe a lot of people uh, can't afford you, but but you're going to make a killing, right? Except mm-hmm. that 
on the other hand, Josh, on the other hand, boy, that other hand causes trouble, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, the average resident now uh, trying to complete their medical training has a net worth of negative $250,000. That's negative $250,000 due to what? The cost of medical school. They're coming mm -hmm. out flat broke from having to pay exorbitant medical school tuition. So yeah, on the other hand, a lot of really poor doctors, young doctors, those who would figure to be the future of the profession, if they can only survive, you know, this, this, this economic um, uh, crisis, if you will. So I don't know, where do we end up? We end up pro-calm? I guess our, our listeners will have to decide maybe, huh? Yeah, I think the, they all took out their uh, their score sheets and they're, they're scoring at home like you do at a baseball game when there was right. baseball games you could go to, right? Okay, well, okay. So let me throw in here. So before you, you know, before you commit, I want to remind you, good friends, there are 6,146 hospitals in the United States. 6,146 hospitals. You know, and that's to go along with 950,000 practicing medical doctors. So again, what what worry, right? Except that one in 10 Americans now across a large swath of the Midwest, South and Southwest, including now California, including Santa Clara County, where I live, lives in an area where intensive care beds are either completely full or fewer than 5% left of capacity available. Lots yeah, of I mean, hospitals, not enough beds. That's, uh, you know, they in, in this area, they opened up uh, the... Uh sleep train arena where the, the Kings used to play before they opened their new one, uh, you know, put a bunch of beds in there for, for this overflow of, of sick people who need it. But there's no, there's no doctors or nurses to actually, you know, treat that many people. So we're still in this case where, and then even with the opening up of, of new spaces like this, uh, we, we just went on to, uh, you know, full, what is it called? Shelter in place mm -hmm. order because, mm -hmm. uh, we are below 15% available, available beds in, in our County. I know your County is the same way. Mm -hmm. At this point, and, and I, I mean, I think most counties in California are now under this order. Yeah, the Kaiser Hospital, which is, I would say, no more than two blocks from where I live in Santa Clara, is uh, showed up on a New York Times map I was looking at this morning, mm -hmm. or it shows your region, showed up as a red bullet point. <sighs> and red basically means 5% or less capacity. So even if I do get COVID, guess where I'm not going? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to the hospital, the local hospital, because they won't, they probably won't have a bed for me. So, right. Uh, all right, but I know what you're thinking. See, Josh, you're thinking, yeah, 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 sure. You're running down all these uh, despairing statistics, but what about freedom? You know, well, America's got freedom, right? I know that's usually where you, you know, you find your solid ground under your feet, don't you? I'm a freedom lover, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so you'd point to, say, North Dakota, the state of North, which has the lowest mask wearing rate in the United States, between 45 and 50 percent. So no more than half the people in Dakota, North Dakota, you know, put on a mask and they see it as a, a personal liberty, personal freedom issue. Um, and so you can say, well, OK, you know, we're short in, in you know, in so many uh, metrics and in these other categories. But at least we got freedom. Hey, at least mm -hmm. we got freedom, except on the other hand, Josh. North Dakota also has the highest COVID death rate per capita in the world right now. So, you know, there's that. Hey, you got to, it's always going to be on the top of something, right? No, they're leading in two categories. 
Oh, boy. You might say. So, but, you know, knowing the people of North Dakota, the good the good people, our, our countrymen in North Dakota, they're, you know, they're, they're freedom-loving people. But, you know, they're also true blue Americans, real salt to the earth, you know, and, and the staff of life for them, like so many Americans at this time of year, is the football playoffs, the, the NFL football playoffs and the march toward the Super Bowl. But I was thinking, gosh, you know what, maybe we won't have a Super Bowl this season, but not to worry, not to worry. It's scheduled for February 7th, Super Bowl 55 uh, at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. So that's got to go in the pro column, wouldn't you think? Got to have a Super Bowl. It's the uh, secular holiday of the year, I think. <laughs> but on the other hand, ah, maybe a guy. Uh, oh, and they're going to play in the Raymond James Stadium there in Tampa. Raymond James. I'm thinking to myself, you know, because I got nothing else to do. I'm thinking, who's Raymond James <laughs> anyway? You know, uh, the Raymond. So I looked it up. As I did all these startling statistics, looked it up, I thought, what, Raymond James, maybe he's a guy who, what, devoted his life to feeding the hungry, maybe a doctor, you know, didn't care if you had health insurance, you know, maybe somebody out there sheltering the homeless, or, well, let me read to you the definition from the internet about Raymond James. Raymond James Financial is an American multinational independent investment bank and financial services company providing financial services to individuals, corporations, and municipalities through its subsidiary companies that engage primarily. And are you still listening, Josh? I'm, I'm fascinated. I can't wait to hear how this ends okay. up. Engage primarily, yeah. <laughs> engage primarily in investment and financial planning, in addition to investment banking and asset management. By the way, Raymond James is not a person. Those are two separate names combined together of the families that began this, the Raymond and the James family. Um, so that sounds great, right? Making money. At least you can say that goes in the pro column. Making money a good old-fashioned way by dint of hard work. And, but on the other hand, on the other hand, in 2004, the SEC fined Raymond James Financial Services, Inc. $6.9 million for failure to supervise former broker Dennis Harula. Harula was accused of participating with others in a Ponzi scheme. That raised about $44.5 million from investors in 1999 and 2000. Harula himself raised about $16.5 million of investor funds, most of which was later transferred to his wife's brokerage account at Raymond James. He was arrested in Bermuda and pleaded guilty to criminal charges of wire fraud and sentenced to 188 months in jail. 188? Not you didn't get life in prison like the you know woman who had a little bit of crack. No. Yeah, uh, he he probably is going to see the light of day. I would imagine. Uh, so that's who's hosting the Super Bowl. In case you were wondering. Um, but you know, look on the other hand, at least it was rich people stealing from other rich people. So badum ching, <laughs> right? Uh, look, I guess is what I'd say after our, our, our lightning round of on the other hand, I guess what I would say, you know, in answer to the question, is America a failed state? Well, Josh, it's a real mixed bag, isn't it? <laughs> well, that, and that's going to be a good transition because I'm going to talk about, you know, some of the, some of these societies or a particular society that is often assumed to be uh, a failed state or a state that is not successful. And, uh, Let's get to that in our next segment, segment three. Permission, permission words, permission 
there's the Shah of Iran and his pretty empress in the front seat, and Walt Disney and the pretty hostess in the back. Well, that narration really took me back, you know, that kind of Disney voiceover. I, I, I heard that stuff, you know, as a kid growing up um, in that, uh, as you as you point uh, out in an earlier conversation, we had a kind of non-regional um, golden voice dialect, you know, of the, uh, the what I guess we call the standard narrator, you know, from yeah. roughly what maybe World War II down to the late... 1960s, you know, um, the kind of uh, archetypal narrator's voice. And in this case, uh, you might be wondering, folks at home, you know, talking about the, uh, you know, the visit of, of some some foreign dignitaries uh, to the happiest place on Earth. That would, of course, be uh, Disneyland and, uh, uh, you know, Anaheim, California, back in the early 1960s. It was the Shah of Iran and uh, his wife, uh, the royal uh, empress, uh, who visited none other than Disneyland. And of course, the cameras were rolling uh, for a man who at that time was an important Cold War uh, ally of the United States. You might recall that it was the, the CIA helped foment the overthrow of the previous uh, ruler of Iran uh, in the 1950s and put into his place then this, uh, this hand-picked uh, pro-American you know, anti-Soviet uh, figure known as the Shah of Iran. Reza Pahlavi was his name. And so they came to a trip, uh, a trip to Disneyland in the early 60s. And, and before we get in, I want to just read to you uh, one of the press reports, because we're going to be talking about something you, you're going to be defining it chiefly, something that we're going to call uh, occidentosis. Uh, and, and, and so what I want to say is what I'm about to read to you in lieu of the formal definition will give us a nice kind of a uh, little bit of color to what oxidentosis is. And this is from a Long Beach newspaper who covered the Shaw's arrival at Disneyland. And the headline was Fun Day, Empress Dons Flats for Disneyland Hike. One of the world's best dressed women kicked off her expensive pumps behind a limousine at Disneyland Wednesday and donned a pair of flats. Preferring comfort in style may not go over so well in Iran, where she is empress, but that's what smart people, royalty or low-born do when they set out to crisscross the acres and acres of Disney paradise. Besides, beside her liege, his majesty, Oof. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> are you enjoying this? Uh, the Shah of Iran wanted to walk around on the cluttered construction site of a new Disneyland attraction as well as visit the established amusement areas. Not even a queen should have to scramble over a construction site in, in pumps. The Shah asked Walt Disney, and Josh, if I could do that uh, non-regional diet. Uh, uh, you, you got to work on that, yeah. For the Shah asked Walt Disney, who accompanied the royal party, if they could get a closer look at new project he spotted from the Santa Fe Disneyland train. Disney ordered the train halted, and they disembarked. All right, well, you get the idea, right? You know, this is how uh, uh, the event was framed in the local press uh, in the uh, back in the 60s, when uh, the Shah of Iran, no less, uh, a man who would later famously uh, be uh, overthrown, right, in the, in the, in mm. the wave of, of Islamist religion uh, in 1979. Uh, 
uh, and uh, would would we only for a time be given safe harbor in the United States to, to get some medical treatment. But that was the reason, by the way, the, the formal reason why the revolutionaries in Tehran took over the U.S. embassy was because they considered the Shah to be a criminal, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in effect, a man who had escaped, uh, taking much of the wealth that he had, his ill-gotten gains compiled over the years and gone to the United States. And it was the, the U.S.'s willing to, uh, willingness to harbor him uh, and to provide him with this medical treatment that so enraged those revolutionaries that they took over the embassy in Tehran, the U.S. embassy, and the famous uh, Iranian hostage crisis uh, mm -hmm. began. Just as an aside, I'll get into my main thing, but did you know that Michel Foucault traveled to Tehran in 79 in support of the Iranian Revolution? I did not know that. It's a, it, you know, there's, there's obviously there's a lot of stuff going on with that, with that revolution, but it just shows how, you know, at that moment, um, how much hope there was. This was literally going to be something new and something, you know, this uh, partnership between maybe uh, this Islamic or Islamist uh, faction, but also this kind of uh, leftist faction and that it was going to, pull Iran out of this torpor that had been under, you know, for so long, not a colony of the West, but certainly uh, subject to the West. And um, that's what I want to talk about today. Not necessarily even Iran, but but a Iranian writer who grew up in uh, in, in Iran in the, I think he, he was born early in the 20th century and became a, a writer and thinker and educator. And that is a man named Jalal al-Iyamad. Um, and Ahmad, um, is you know not a, a super well-known figure, but um, but his influence was fairly significant. Uh, the Iranian Revolution itself uh, laid claim to his ideas. He he had died before uh, the revolution occurred. But um, what's interesting about him to me, and the reason why I want to talk about him, is because of this this term he uses. And he doesn't actually invent the term; he borrows it from somebody else. But he is certainly the one given credit for for popularizing it to the extent that it's popular. And that is this term that gives our uh, episode its title, Occidentosis. It's alternatively translated as West Toxification. Uh, and it kind of speaks to the problem of this, this emergent world uh, post-World War II, uh, during the time of decolonization, and in this, this period, the 1950s and 60s, where it seemed as if a different way was possible. Uh, you know, I talked a few weeks ago about, about these, you know, the movement of the third world and the, the idealism of the third world. But I think even by the, the early 1960s, Imad had kind of soured on some of that promise and was feeling more and more despondent about the, the potential for, for real change. And so he uh, writes this, this short book, it's about 130-some pages, in which he's going to lay out the idea of Occidentosis. He calls it a plague from the West. And so I'm just going to read the opening line where he begins to define Occidentosis. He says, I speak of Occidentosis as of tuberculosis but perhaps is more it more closely resembles an infestation of weevils. Have you seen how they attack wheat from the inside? The bran remains intact, but it is just a shell, like a cocoon left behind on a tree. At any rate, I'm speaking of a disease, an accident from without, spreading in an environment rendered susceptible to it. Um, he, he's going to go on to define the term in different ways, but I think that, that gets at the core of it, that this oxidentosis is this disease that spreads from the West, and the result is um, it changes the society, it changes individuals within the society, it changes the ideals and the ideology of a society, and it renders the past obsolete, um, it renders old, old uh, ideas of community obsolete, it renders old ideologies obsolete. Um, 
But what Imad is kind of suggesting throughout the work, and this is you know something that that's certainly going to be um, uh, followed by by other thinkers of this time as well, is that while this system that's being spread, Imad often calls it the machine, um, is very good at wiping away the old. It is not very good at replacing it with something new, and so it leaves these societies like Iran um, in this very difficult position where they're neither nor, uh, as opposed to being something new. They're neither what they were, nor are they really fit to uh, exist and compete within this modern world system. Um, And so the reason why, and I just want to kind of walk everybody through my thinking, because I think you, Chris, have had a very um, um, clear kind of path, I think, throughout these these podcasts these episodes our first episode was was about you critiquing the very idea of western i'm sorry of of the american uh, history the u.s history survey and you have consistently um i think uh, highlighted your ideas and and augmented your ideas and given more evidence of of your ideas about the limitations of that survey and i think also begun to um to propose what can replace it and uh hopefully people will be able to see that in your, your writing at some point in the near future, where I've increasingly been going, and I, I think less consistently, I've been jumping around from place to place, is going to relate back to this this idea of the Western of Western civilization and the critique of Western civilization. Um, we've talked about this before on our episodes at some length or or less length, but you know the critique of Western civ that we've been pr- promoting is first of all based on just the idea: is it a thing? Right? Is there is such a thing as Western civilization? Um, and I think we have both agreed that no, there is not. Uh, it's a very much a construct and it serves a very uh, particular set of political uh, and ideological purposes. Um, but the other thing about, about Western Civ is, you know, whether or not it's a thing, there's a set of assumptions behind it. Um, and those assumptions are not insignificant. They actually have a, um, an, an impact. They actually are going to influence the way people live their lives and develop their societies and think about their societies because it has a set of assumptions behind it. Western Civ has a bunch, a set of assumptions behind it. And one of the key assumptions I think that we, we still see pretty frequently, even in the year 2020, is the idea that there is a set of cultural factors that are distinct and specific to the West, and those cultural factors result in a set of political and economic outcomes. Um, the assumptions are significant because they lead to ideas about development, which is now going to, you know, is going to tie back to what I'm going to say about Iamad and, and Occidentosis. Um, and, and the assumption is that um, only by adopting those set of cultural, social, and ideological assumptions that we associate with the West can development occur, right? That the countries that are poor, the countries that are, um, you know, that, that don't have a large role in the global economy or global society or global politics, it's because they haven't adopted these assumptions that come from the West, culture, ideology, politics, society, and whatever else. In other words, uh, these things are good, and therefore they will lead naturally to good outcomes. This is an assumption of of development theory in the post-war period, the idea that societies around the world need to adopt the West and Western ideas, and once they do, wealth and prosperity will come. Um, And so we're kind of led to believe then that it was the genius of the West that led to the power and influence of the West. Um, what I've increasingly come to understand and, and focus on, and, and certainly I'm not alone in this, but I think it's really important to point out is that that probably is backwards. Um, Iamad himself will point this out, but uh, 
What seems to actually be the case is the power and influence of the West has led us to believe and accept the genius of the West, right? That we have this, we have this completely uh, uh, reversed, that we assume these things are good, and therefore, because they're good, they lead to power and influence. But it's almost certainly the case that the power and influence has led us to believe those things are good. We had this conversation a little while ago. Remember about the, we were talking about the Protestant Reformation? Um, and, and the idea that if not for discovery of the Americas and, and the exploitation uh, and theft of the wealth of the Americas and then later, you know, Africa and Asia, the Protestant Reformation would probably just show up in history as like this this minor little schism in some faraway mm-hmm. corner of, of, of Eurasia. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of what's going to happen eventually, the Reformation takes on this, this outsized role. And, and you'll literally see, you know, both in our own time, but you see this in, in sources throughout the 20th century, um, you know, leaders of of the uh, the non-Western world, you know, say stuff like we need to have our own reformation, which is just a historical non sequitur. It doesn't make sense at all. But but the idea that the path that the West took is the path we need to take as well. And the path has these steps and that includes a reformation, which, again, makes no sense in countries that are not controlled by the Catholic Church and uh, and, and whatever else. But um, hey, let me throw in here, you know, yeah, yeah. because what you're describing to me you know, really gets at the root of a lot of the, you know, the sort of justification for these systems. And, you know, we might we might call these justifications, uh, what, tautologies, right? You know, and a, yes. a tautology is a, a statement that uh, affirms a certain truth by appealing to its own definition of, of the thing. And so, uh, you know, I, it's the holiday season. It'd be like saying, well, the, the reason there are, you know, so many, you know, uh, red Santas, out there is because you know red is the color that Santa wears, you know, which yeah. is, is sort of nonsensical but self-reinforcing. And 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 what it does is it not only explains purports to explain why Santas wear red, but why there are Santas in the first place and why that's a good thing and why they should be. In other words, it it kind of it props up an orthodoxy without really either challenging the orthodoxy or looking in very clear ways at it. So that's kind of what it's reminding me of as you're describing this diagnosis of oxidentosis. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, what you just said about, you know, we assume these things are good. Um, it, it's such an important way of kind of trying to get around this and try to escape this this idea. I literally have this this file that I created, uh, this probably a month and a half ago, and it's it's just titled, uh, what if it's bad? That's the title. What if it's bad? <laughs> and then it's, there's only one thing written there, and it says the Greeks? Question mark. So you know w- what tends to happen is that these things we associate with this idea of Western civilization then take on this mantle of being good because they led to this thing called Western civilization. <laughs> but if you if you upset those assumptions and you start actually asking, well, what if these things are not actually good? And what if the outcome, by the way, is not actually good? Then it, it throws everything, you know, kind of out of order. It, it kind of disrupts this whole set of, uh, of ideas about what the world is. So that gets us to Jalal al-Yamad. Um, as I said, he is this, uh, this, um, uh, this thinker and intellectual in Iran. Uh, he's writing the 50s and 60s. He, he you know, acquires some, some uh, level of fame to the extent that he can travel abroad and he can meet with, you know, other thinkers and, and writers around the world. Um, but certainly not a not a huge figure at the time. Um, but he's he's kind of trying to navigate this world um, of Iran in the 1960s, the world of the Shah who can go to Disneyland and you know receive this almost you know this PR piece written by a, a newspaper. Right? It's crazy how you know that's journalism, but it literally is just an advertisement for the Shah 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally, you know, reputation laundering for the for the Shah <laughs> and then, uh, you know, a, a kind of advertisement for Disneyland at the same time. He's he's navigating the society and he's looking around and he's seeing this husk that I, that I kind of was describing earlier. The weevils have done their bit. The oxidentosis has created a bunch of oxidentoctic uh, individuals, those who are infested with oxidentosis. And he gets more and more despairing about where the country is and, and where it's been because, as I said earlier, it's neither nor. It's neither uh, you know connected to its own cultural traditions and its own set of identities, but it also isn't really the West. It sometimes takes on the guise of the West. You know, the Shah can wear a nice suit. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, her, his wife can wear proper shoes to walk around Disneyland, um, but it's not the same as actually being um, the West. And by the way, uh, I'm using the term West and East here because Iamad defines them in a very clear way. He says, these are not geographical terms at all. South Africa can be part of the West and Latin America can be part of the East, despite the fact that that's not <laughs> at all how the right. geography works. Well, and he we should that, should we not yeah. explain too that the, the, the very label oxidentosis, I mean, he's using, there's a kind of double entendre there, but, yeah. because it's it's a Western construct this idea of an orient and an occident yes thank and you, east yeah. and a west with the with the occident being the presumptive west and so he's he's playing off that obviously and turning it against the usual claims uh that that implies yes thank yeah that that's a really very good clarification um so so for him the west and the east again not geographic at all he says the west is the part of the world that's sated and the east the part of the world that's hungry and that's the that's the end of it, right? That's what it actually means. Um, mm-hmm. So you know he's he's writing within a genre of of thinkers um, throughout. I think you know going back to the late nineteenth century, and certainly well into the twentieth century as well, that are attempting to come to terms with the scope and the significance of the West power or the power of the West. Let me say it that way. And that power is obviously you know political. It's physical in the sense of empire and that sort of thing. But it goes, it goes beyond that, um, and it becomes pretty pervasive. And it becomes pervasive to the extent that it's very, very difficult to, um, to see anything outside the system created by, by that, that, that power. And, and he constantly complains in the book about the fact that we're supposed to judge these criteria, judge things based on the criteria of the West, which again is that kind of self-reinforcing thing that we can only judge ourselves based on the criteria of others. He complains about the Orientalists, these you know, these uh, Western writers who purport to know the East and having, you know, he talks about the humiliation of having to be corrected by an Englishman about, you know, Persian culture um, because they've studied it and they've been to university and they know it better uh, than than even somebody born in the country can. Um, but, but again, that idea of living in a system uh, which can only be judged by the criteria of the system is for an intellectual, for somebody who's who wants to think about these things and, and look them in their face and not not hide from them, you know, is obviously um, not ideal. And so, you know, this is this is a, a kind of writing that you're going to find in other places. Um, you can find this in like late 19th century Japan, where you have a lot of Japanese writers who are confronting the major change Japan is under undertaking. And for all the successes Japan has in the late 19th century, many of these particularly young writers feel a sense of loss. Um, you see this in um, in Egypt, you see it in India, you see it obviously in Iran in this case, where people are seeing the changes happening. Sometimes they are supportive of some of the changes, but they also are increasingly sad about what has been lost. Um, and so, for instance, uh, there's a Japanese writer named Tanabashi Ichiro, 
writing in, in the 1880s. And he speaks about what Japan has become as a result of all this modernization. He says, it's as if we're wandering in confusion through a deep fog. And again, it's that, that, that sense of dislocation, that sense of, of loss that comes with these material gains that the modernization is supposed to bring. Uh, Iyamad himself refers to, be, to floating in a void. The feeling of oxidentosis is floating in a void. Um, with nothing that ties you down. You see uh, that that metaphor often used as well, this kind of untethering of societies and individuals within this uh, system where things that come from the West are assumed to be good and therefore must be adopted. Things that are traditional are assumed to be bad and should be uh, and should be thrown out. And, and again, the end result is that sense of emptiness, that sense of floating in space with nothing to uh, to tie things together. I like that idea of, of being in a fog, you know, Josh, because part of what we're saying is, you know, when you live in a system like this and, and you're, you're conditioned to believe that is somehow the best of all possible worlds, what you're suffering from, in effect, is a kind of diminished vision, you know, a, a visual yes. capacity. And, and as if in a fog, you know, your visual field is, is you know, is suddenly... Um, is narrowed and uh so when we look at things you know in, in, in the united states you know very statistics and whatnot you know that seem to cry out for fundamental change and and uh, such those things instead get passed off in this diminished capacity of, of vision as somehow actually progressive or you know uh, beneficial i think that's exactly right and this is what iamad is, is struggling with so much is that he's, he's looking at this country where you can go to tehran and you can see you know, there's automobiles going down the street and there's big buildings and there's, you know, uh, something like a representative body. But they're all that same kind of hollowed out husk that he describes in his, his definition of, of oxidentosis. They have the form that the West assumes is what should be there, but none of the functions. Um, he talks about the fact that, you know, the machine rules everything. Um, and one of the ways the West has power over the world is that they sell the machines and other people use the machines. And those who use the machines are always going to be therefore subject to the machines. Uh, he talks about taxi drivers in Tehran, who um, you know they uh, they drive their taxis around during the day, and at night they have to pay um, you have to pay to garage their cars because it gets so cold in Tehran. They need to be protected, and it costs. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the currency in, in, in Iran at that time, but uh, it costs you know one of those currencies to house the car, and then they have to go to a hotel and they spend two. Uh, currencies to, to, to house themselves and so we're, we're you know we literally create these societies that are serving the machines instead of actually serving the society um, and this is kind of what he's seeing uh, over and over again as he as he travels and talks to people is that the system has been corrupted in such a way that it's it doesn't serve anybody other than the system itself those who benefit from it uh, are you know the shah himself uh corrupt administrators and, and civil servants he talked about tribal leaders who, who who benefit from this. The oil companies benefit from it, but none of that wealth filters down into into the society. You mentioned earlier, you know, that when the Shah came to power, actually was restored to power. Um, you had a nationalist leader, Mosada, uh, who um, his big crime was he nationalized the the oil. Right, he tried to actually seize the uh, the wealth of the country for itself instead of for a company <laughs> called I think it was called the Anglo Iranian oil company which it was the iranian in that title basically it just meant the oil was taken from iran <laughs> iranians didn't actually get any of the wealth from it um and you know 
the, the kind of larger point then is that as you look around the world and you, and you see these societies uh, either who have just gone through that process of decolonization or like Latin America uh, had long since past uh, become, become independent or countries like Iran who had never uh, actually been formally colonized, you see the same situation over and over and over again, right? That, that what are the success stories of this process? Where can you look around the world and say this, this uh, theory of development, this theory of, of the West, uh, if we borrow from them, if we ape their, their, and, and mimic their habits, we will become prosperous as well. Can, can you think of one example world historically in the 20th century where it has worked, where their countries have, have dug themselves out of poverty and become quote unquote developed? Uh, you mean outside of Disneyland? No, I can't. I, yeah, I can't. <laughs> outside, yeah. Right. Yeah. Epcot Center. I can't. Yeah. And yet, instead of that being seen as a failure of the system, it's again and again, you know, going to be rooted to the idea that these societies themselves had failed. If they had adopted more, if they had tried harder, if they had, uh, you know, given up more of their culture, then maybe they could have been successful. Um, and there's never that kind of, uh, you know, self-reflection about the system itself, um, whether it's, you know, the World Bank giving these high interest loans to try to promote development, uh, it, whether it's, you know, the, the global economic community forcing countries to open up their, their borders to, uh, to trade and to, uh, you know, corporations becoming more involved in their economy. Again and again and again, what we see is um, the countries that were poor in 1945 are largely the same countries that are poor today. Um, and so, you know, that is what Imad is is diagnosing, that the, the solutions we're being given by the system are not actually ever going to solve the problem. All they're going to do is create a bunch of people who have now begun to wear Western suits. He talks about how many beauty salons there are in, in Tehran. There's more beauty salons in Tehran than there are in Paris, I think, in the 1960s. Because, you know, those who have acquired some manner of, of wealth, some access to that kind of bourgeois class, you know, they come to see part of that being that class is looking the right way, having your mustache trimmed, having your hair cut. Uh, he talks about women who have been told that they're equal, and that means that they can take off the veil and they can walk the streets, even though they're not allowed to vote, they're not allowed to serve as judges, they're not allowed to serve as educators, um, and yet they can now buy perfume and they can buy makeup and they can uh, participate in this consumer society. And so over and over again, what we see is, is you know, kind of the the material aspects of the West show up, um, but not in service of anything that might actually have the result of helping people. So again, that development model is broken. Um, and Iamad has seen that in 1962 when, when the book is first published and then it goes through later editions as well. The ideal had been that, you know, by adopting the assumptions of the West, um, the East could escape that kind of quote unquote oriental torpor, that oriental, you know, stupor, we'll say, uh, that had plagued the non-Western world, according to the theorists of empire and the theorists of, of development. Um, and, you know, by adopting those assumptions, they could reach the great heights of those powerful nations. The, the idea that, that the mere adoption of Western attributes could lead to Western outcomes was always faulty. And it always relied on the idea that the context of the West, when the West became powerful, um, was, um, was universal, right? That one of the big assumptions of the Western civ idea is that the things that come out of the West are not particular, they're universal, and therefore they can work at, uh, anywhere. But the reality is that the context of, you know, European history in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century were, was very, very specific. The, the conditions were specific, the context was specific, and it couldn't just be repeated everywhere. And if you try to repeat it, 
what you le are left with is the Iran that Iyamad is observing, uh, the, the Mexico of, of the 1950s and 60s, the uh, Egypt of the 1950s, the Turkey of the 1950s and 60s. We can go kind of on and on and on and look at these countries who are trying to, uh, you know, mimic and borrow and, and, um, and, and resemble the West, uh, but with none of the, the material wealth that was supposed to come with it. And what you're left with then is men in suits, you know, uh, taking taxis throughout the city, going to nice modern buildings, um, but also believing in nothing. Yamad describes a society where many exist um, with nothing to stand on, no certainty, and no faith. So everything's been taken, but nothing uh, has really been given. And so the realization I kind of came through, through from reading this, this piece is that, you know, I'm reading these descriptions of, of Iran in the 1960s, and they feel too familiar. They feel too much like things uh, that I've seen. And so what almost seems to have happened is where the ideal was that the West would spread its ways, spread its attributes all across the world. Uh, all these societies would adopt those ways, and then they'd become, you know, wealthy and prosperous as well. What has happened is actually the opposite, is that that oxidentosis, which was brought to these societies through uh, the, uh, the efforts of the powerful Western states, has instead spread back to the West. Um, that the, the problems that Yamad is seeing in the 1960s in Iran are now problems we are accustomed to seeing in our own failed state in the year 2020. Uh, and I just want to give, a, a, you know, uh, read a part of this so you can kind of see what I'm talking about here and see if this sounds familiar. The Occidentotic, so that's somebody who has Occidentosis, is a man totally without belief or conviction to such an extent that he not only believes in nothing, he also does not actively disbelieve in anything. He is a time server. Once he gets across the bridge, he doesn't care if it stands or falls. He has no faith, no direction, no aim, no belief, neither in God nor in humanity. He cares neither whether society is transformed or not, whether religion or irreligion prevails. He is not even irreligious. He is indifferent. And on the next page, he, also, he, he says, he has only fear. Fear of tomorrow, fear of dis dismissal, fear of anonymity, fear of discovery that the warehouse he has weighing down his head and tries to foist off as a brain is empty. And that last line in particular just made me think of, of our elites those who are coming out of our elite institutions, our Ivy Leagues, uh, filled with a sense of their own importance, filled with a sense of their own, uh, you know, kind of destiny to continue to be elite. But ultimately, these kind of hollow, uh, often men, uh, filled with this own, their own sense of their superiority, but ultimately um, carrying around these warehouses that are full of nothing. So I don't know, what, what do you think of that? Does that does it remind you of, of kind of what, we see in our own society? Of course it does. It's because it's a spot on diagnosis. And, you know, I was just thinking about a, a show I've been watching recently on HBO called Industry. It's a series and mm -hmm. it takes place in a financial district in London with all these Gen Z, you know, financial industry workers uh, who, who work for, you know, one of these juggernaut companies. And it's, it's a kind of brilliant indictment of it, really, because they're literally killing themselves. They... Uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they're having to take all kinds of, um, you know, uh, stimulants and and other uh, sort of mood enhancing drugs and whatnot just to, you know, to stay the course of their jobs and what passes for their social lives. 
but there's a kind of aimlessness to it, a kind of, um, you know, emptiness as you describe it. Uh, there's no great conviction. They're talented. They're smart. They, they take the company line, you know, but it's they're not producing anything. You know, there's not a the only product right. is is sort of their own decadence, you know. And so, yeah, I think as a, right. as a kind of contemporary, you know, sort of version of that um, def, definitely industry. And here in a minute, I'll, I'll even talk more about uh, Disneyland because I think Disneyland is also a great uh, sort of mirror of that as well. But y- yeah, absolutely. It, it does sound familiar. So, you know, the, the, the funny thing is that Iamod himself, he's, he's an interesting thinker. Um, he has lots to say, you know, as, as hopefully people are hearing, I connected with a lot of stuff he's saying, but he's also not a particularly rigorous thinker. Uh, there's, there's par- parts in the, in the book where he, he says, you know, I don't have time to, sh- to show you the evidence of this. You're gonna have to look it up yourself. Um, at, at one point when, uh, you know, he's kind of laying out what we can do about oxidantosis. He says, don't ask me to go into details. <laughs> That's not what I do. And so, you know, you, you read this book and you see this this diagnosis and a lot of it kind of rings true and, and, and it connected, as as I said. But the question of solutions is is, is left a little bit hard to discern. Um, one interesting thing, you know, that as I've been reading a lot of these these thinkers and scholars of, of you know, I guess what we can call the third world or, or the East, as, as Ahmad called it, um, is how many of them had emerged from religious backgrounds and adopted a, a secular point of view. Um, you know, maybe as, as part of the symptom of oxidantosis, the idea that believing in, you know, the religions of, of your family and your ancestry was not uh, civilized enough and therefore only secularism could actually allow for yourself and your country to develop. And that as they became more attuned to the actual way the system worked, uh, they actually, a lot of these guys come back to religion. And that's certainly the case with the Ahmad, uh, who had been born in a very religious family. He had a, a long tradition of his father and his father's father and, and on and his, his uncles, um, you know, uh, being prayer leaders in, in the local mosque and, and, and you know, kind of religious uh, leaders and, and, and scholars. And he specifically um, went away from that. Right? He literally, against the wishes of his family, went and got a secular education and became this kind of secular intellectual. And now we're in the 1960s and he's not sure what to do next. Um, he is critical of Islam or at least the Islamic um, uh, kind of infrastructure. He says it's often too too backward looking. He says it is um, it's it has a medieval attitude. He says it's too insular. Uh, he, he describes the religious leadership as having enclosed itself in a cocoon uh, with no hope of, of escape. Uh, it's not addressing the actual problems of the country. And yet he also is, I think, um, he needs what religion has to offer because the solution for him to this this feeling of of weightlessness, this feeling of, of emptiness, is some kind of belief. You know, not the the these uh, occidentotic thinkers who believe in neither God nor humanity, but something that can actually tie us together. And he, he's actually he's, he's going to think back longly to these earlier periods in Islam where the division between Shia and Sunni didn't matter as much, and you know the idea that the Ottomans and the Safavids, these two great empires of of uh, West Asia and, and kind of uh, Eastern Mediterranean, they had to be enemies because of these religious differences, um, a time in which Islam represented some kind of unity. He's very uh, uh, attached to that idea, even as his own religious belief, you know, kind of wavers here and there. He sometimes goes to mosque, sometimes doesn't, sometimes does his prayers, sometimes doesn't, but increasingly comes to believe that humans need something. 
They need some kind of sense of community. They need some kind of sense of connection. And what the machine of, uh, of the West, the thing that brings this, this oxidentosis tends to do is wipe away all those things that people can build community on, that they can build a sense of identity on. They go away, but again, what they leave behind is, is nothing to replace it. And that leaves people feeling this sense of longing for something real. Um, you know, as I said earlier, when the Iranian revolution happens and it, it brings to power this essentially religious uh, uh, government, um, that system headed by the Ayatollah, you know, kind of rescues Yamad from somewhat obscurity and kind of places them as a, as a leading intellectual within the movement. It's uncertain whether he would have been for or against this, but it does kind of speak to this idea that that in, in the face of, of nothingness, which is what uh, oxidentosis creates, people want something. And it's actually in a weird way made me a little sympathetic to, um, to uh, you know, kind of this Islamic ideology, not specifically for the beliefs, not specifically for the kind of theism of it, but just because if you think about, you know, Islam as, as an ideological system, there's, I think, over a billion Muslims in the world. Um, most of them live in countries that have been subject to this oxidentosis to a greater or lesser degree. It makes sense to me that people would want to embrace something like this. It makes sense that people would want to have that sense that we are a part of something, that we can uh, be masters of our own destiny, that we don't have to be subject to the political, economic, social, and cultural power of of the West, which has never been successful at actually running any of these societies particularly well. Um, so again, it's not that I want to go out and, and convert to Islam and, and join up with the Taliban or anything like that, but at least the pull of those kind of movements makes sense within a world in which globalization, corporatism has tended to have the effect of, you know, deracinating de people, um, of disrupting culture, of homogenizing the world and, and leaving in its place people who have no real convictions, who have no sense of, of um, you know, hope for the future, um, who just feel as if they were wandering in a fog uh, without a sense of where they're going. Very well said. I think that, um, you know, we have lots of food for thought here. What do you say we take it into our outro and uh, offer some final concluding notions? Yeah, let's do it. Um, I hope Homeland Security is not going to, you know, come after me now as being part of a radical Islamic movement uh, bent on the destruction of the American way of life. Is that is that possible? Well, that you're assuming that? the system is efficient and works as it purports to, but so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. All right, let's go to our last section. So a lot of what you're alluding to there, you know, Josh, has been kind of the legacy of this diagnosis of what we're calling oxidentosis. That is the, the essential, um, you know, ho hollow promise, if you will, of the Western model. And uh, boy, you know, the ironies um, just pile on top of, of one another, you know, that uh, we can we can stack the ironies like cordwood here, because if we go back to 79, and the Iranian Revolution, you know, we had mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter as president, right? And so Jimmy Carter was a candidate, after all, who had come uh, to prominence only one one term or so as governor of Georgia. And, and uh, in the wake of, of Watergate, you know, by telling the American people that 
know, his greatest his greatest virtue was that he would never lie to the country. You know, he made no yeah. secret of the fact that he was a born again Christian. Uh, and he wore that on his, you know, his shirt sleeve, so to speak. He carried his own luggage on the campaign trail. He wore sweaters instead of Wall Street suits, and uh, you know that kind of down home, folksy image. And, and the U.S. had really moved away from that Southern idea of of, of the folksy down home character because of uh, you know Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement and George Wallace and all that stuff. But Carter brought it back and said there was something of a, a trusted element there. Uh, you know, his sister was a faith healer in the Baptist church and uh, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Crazy. I yeah. mean, this is a guy who was an Annapolis graduate. He was a nuclear engineer. He was an extraordinarily intelligent guy. But he played that peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, you know, role so exquisitely. And the interesting and the ironic thing is that, you know, his great adversary and the, and the one who would really, you know, probably ultimately have more to do with his, his failure as president was, of course, the Iranian revolutionary uh, figurehead leader uh, Khomeini, you know the Ayatollah, right? This this yeah. uh, Shia cleric, Imam figure, uh, who was going to take Iran back to these bedrock principles of a kind of you know primitive Islam. Well, that that in effect was Jimmy Carter's thing too. You know, he's a born again Christian. He wants to reconnect, you know, to this bedrock yeah. religious uh, what we'd call fundamentalism. And he gives a famous speech. Uh, Carter does. In, uh, oh, I think I want to say 79, what came to be called the crisis of confidence speech or the malaise speech. Yeah, where he goes malaise, on national yeah. television, he basically says we have a crisis of con conscience uh, here, a crisis of confidence. That is, we've come to value material things without understanding, you know, what's important to us, you know, or the things that we think are important to us don't offer us much um, solace or satisfaction in the end. And it was in the context of the energy crisis and the long lines of gas stations and Americans were freaking out because our car culture had always been a bedrock of the American dream. And I'm going to get just quickly back to Disneyland on that, uh, you know, because one of the things that Disneyland <laughs> featured was the autorama where you could go drive these little cars around a track, you know. Uh, yeah. And so... Uh, you know, with the, with the inability to resolve the Iranian hostage crisis, you know, you, you get the return of, of the conservative Republican in the form of Ronald Reagan, who's going to be the very uh, obverse, you know, in many ways of, of Carter. You know, uh, he's, you know, an uncertain, you know, churchgoer. He's a divorced guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's willing to pay lip service to what becomes the moral majority and sanction their own brand of fundamentalism which was mostly punitive. It was anti-abortion, you know, anti-pornography, anti any number of things. Uh, but really what Reagan brings is this kind of, you know, insulin shot of, of um, you know, of, pay, of kind of patriotism on the cheap, I would call it. There his Hollywood production values. The guy was a, you know, B-movie actor from Hollywood and he brought those production values. So there was always a lot of sort of crass, you know, uh, flag waving and bands playing and, you know, little flag lapel pin wearing uh, things. And and in effect, mm -hmm. so the verdict was, you know, we played the game earlier, but on the other hand, pro or con column, you know, was that Jimmy Carter got, you know, marked down in the con column and John Ronald Reagan, you know, initiates a new political revolution, the Reagan revolution, that we're living uh, with the fruits of that still today in the politics of the country. So, um, yeah, so my point is there's a lot of irony there because, in effect, Jimmy Carter, much like the Ayatollah, much like Imadi, was offering a very sober diagnostic, you know, a diagnosis of, of what he uh, the Iranian calls uh, oxidentosis, that is, the ultimately kind of bankrupt 
you know, um, system of material gain and, and uh, you know, purportedly progressive politics. But but ultimately, you know, the the, the host I mean, uh, the Shah went to the right place, Josh, you know, when he went to Disneyland. And to mm -hmm. use a phrase that's kind of popular these days, you know, he went to Disneyland because game recognizes game. You know, he looked at Walt <laughs> Disney and thought, this is a hustler who I can understand. And I had, I had a great... A uh, grad school professor, Josh, by the name of Roland Marchand at Davis, who was a very talented historian, wrote a book on the advertising, the birth of modern advertising in the 20s called The Selling of the American Dream. And Roland would do this great piece on Disneyland, you know, because, you know, this Hollywood animator, you know, Walt Disney, very right wing, very conservative guy, wanted to create a vision of America that was classless, that is without social economic classes, that it was without race, but it was white. Um, it didn't have ethnic divisions. It didn't have urban poverty. You know, when you went to Disneyland, you didn't see any of that stuff at Disneyland. You could either go to the past, which was a nostalgic take on America's sort of frontier past, or you could go to the future, which is a kind of, you know, equally sanitized vision of the future. Um, and so it was a complete hustle, you know, that was meant to distract people. And, and you know, even the buildings on Main Street in Disneyland were seven-eighths scale. They seemed smaller. You had this sense of small town being more intimate. And although you never saw them, they had an army of trash sweepers who hid behind the false facades at Disneyland who would come out and quickly yeah. uh, sweep up the cigarette butts. So there was a kind of sanitized uh, vision of what this, uh, this American place. The only problem was it was, it was entirely escapist and fantasy you know it didn't actually represent the the uh, you know the real conditions in america even at that time let alone the cold war fears and all that kind of stuff it was it was a kind of uh you know a selling of of a, of a you know a kind of what a sanitized vision of what this western model was supposed to be and so yeah that's where the shah goes because he's going to do the same thing in Iran, as you said. If we got more beauty salons in Tehran and more Fords, you know, tooling around and Western oil companies mm -hmm. and stuff like that, then you know that by definition must mean we're progressive and rich and doing, you know, doing the right thing. Yeah, um, and and I think you know the, the whole kind of artifice of it um, is really important because. You know, what, I, I I made the case earlier that Yamad doesn't really quite have a solution. <laughs> he says that's not my job. I'm not going to go into details about this. But he actually does have have an interesting point that that part of the problem with with the system as it is is again this idea of the machine, and and he means that both kind of literally and figuratively, um, the machine being you know the thing that that drives the modern world, and the problem that he he's diagnosing here that the real issue and the thing that we need to get beyond is is to me the fundamental issue and that is that um the traditional uh, narrative the traditional idea the traditional assumptions that that the world is based around is that the machine is itself the end right that the industrial revolution is is the end and if everybody else can industrialize and develop then they'll reach the same heights but what he says is the machine is a means not an end the end is to abolish poverty and to put the material and spiritual welfare of all within the reach of all that's it that's what we're supposed to do. But when we get caught up in the system itself and protecting the system and making sure that trade is free enough and that, you know, capital moves freely enough and that, you know, all these kind of um, assumptions of, of this Western model, they're important because they're important. Well, then what we're missing is, well, what, what are we trying to achieve here? What's the goal? Is it to, you know, spread this essentially uh, ideological vision of the world that's in many ways just as ideological as, 
as the most um, you know fundamentalist Islam, or are we actually trying to create a world that serves well, you the people know, in the world? I, let me throw in and, just you know, quickly. You know, yeah. I mean, look. So Jimmy Carter goes down as as a kind of you know his presidency you know is is sort of checked off as not especially successful, right? But what did Jimmy Carter do? In the 40 years since his presidency, and even even now, as he, you know, in his late 90s, you know, um, represents, is that he went to work, you know, on behalf of what I guess we would say, you know, these values that matter. You know, he signed up for Habitat for Humanity and began building homes for the poor. Mm -hmm. He was a global ambassador, you know, for human rights, uh, promoting peace. Uh, he became elections observer, right? Irony on irony, you know, uh, yeah. helping countries you know, with uh, fair, free and fair elections. Um, and so, you know, maybe, you know, what we say is, that, you know, forget about the politics of Carter's presidency, you know, that, that the antidote or, you know, following the diagnosis uh, has, has something to do with, you know, yeah, you're right, not radical Islam, not the Taliban, not ISIS, not the Proud Boys, you know, um, uh, but, but rather... Mm -hmm. That kind of, you know, community building and and volunteer spirit and, you know, yeah. connecting people as opposed to, you know, driving them apart. And sure, it makes me sound a little Pollyannish, but, you know, Jimmy Carter has 40 years to show of success to show, you know, for I think for his efforts. Yeah. I mean, and in and, and so many ways, this has become the, the Jimmy Carter show, but he's been a far better ex-president than the president. Um, and, you know, the model we have right now is the Obamas, you know, becoming Netflix producers, <laughs> which is a different idea, I guess, of what you can do post-presidency. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's right, that that, that search for community is, is ultimately the, the challenge. And, and how do we create community in a world where, you know, your own, the people around you in your neighborhood are less important than the people that you communicate with online in many cases, that we're forming communities around, you know, who likes Marvel movies and who likes DC movies that becomes like a, a actual bone of contention people actually care about. Um, but how do we build these communities that can protect each other, that can care for each other, that can become a sense of identity without creating that, that, that sense of boundaries between people at the same time. And to many, in many ways, that is the fundamental challenge of, of this contemporary world is, is how do we keep everything from fracturing into all these different groups, all these different identities, all these different ways of thinking when what we really need to be doing is building up small communities that can relate to other small communities that can build up into a world that that does what a, what uh, Iamad is talking about, which serves the interest of humans, which abolishes poverty and puts the material and spiritual welfare of all within the reach of all. Um, I want to end here with my favorite thinker of the 20th century, Amy Césaire, who I've referenced now a thousand times. I think he's out now uh, eclipsed Ringo as as my uh, my go to. Not enough, uh, I reference. would say. Yeah, right. <laughs> so in um, 1956, 1955 rather, uh, Césaire writes this letter to the head of the French Communist Party. Césaire has been a, a member of the Communist Party in Martinique for, for years. He actually is the, the uh, you know, an elected official for the, on the Communist Party uh, ticket for many years. But in the wake of Stalin's death and the, the kind of de-Stalinization of the Soviet Union and all these these um, all this uh, knowledge about what had actually gone on in, in Stalinist Russia, um, Césaire was was disgusted and sickened by it. He was disgusted and sickened by the attitude of the French Communist Party. He was disgusted and sickened by uh, the way that the French Communist Party treated Martinican communists like they were colonized people. And so he writes this letter to the head of the French Communist Party renouncing his membership in, in the Communist Party. And it's a, such a brilliant document. Maybe we can share it on the website as well. 
Um, and he's kind of laying out this, this alternate path that essentially we don't serve ideas. We need ideas to serve us um, is maybe the conclusion. And he concludes uh, towards the end of the letter. He says, I'm not bearing myself in a narrow particularism, but neither do I want to lose myself in an emaciated universalism. There are two ways to lose oneself, walled segregation in the particular or dilution in the universal. My conception of the universal is that of a universal enriched by all this particular, a universal enriched by every particular, the deepening and coexistence of all particulars. And so, so we need to have the patience to take up the task anew, the strength to redo that which has been undone, the strength to invent instead of follow, the strength to invent our path and clear it of ready-made forms, those petrified forms that obstruct it. And to me, that's the vision. That's what it's got to be, right? We've got to wipe away these assumptions, we got to get rid of this idea. These things are good because they're good. Uh, these things are good because they're associated with the things we associate with good. Uh, we need to be able to invent, to rethink, and to get rid of those obstructions that keep us from finally creating a world in which um, the, the end is not building machines, not building buildings, not constructing power of various sorts, but is making the world a better place for humanity. Very well said, my friend, and uh, I think I can uh, take it on good authority. You won't be going to Disneyland over the break. <laughs> no, my, my family loves Disneyland. This is making me very uncomfortable to have to take a side on this. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to come back, folks, after a, a short uh, winter break, uh, you might say, a short uh, winter slumber uh, into the new year. We will greet you again. And, and gosh, Josh, if nothing else, we'll know uh, whether the uh, the Trumpian coup d'etat was successful by then, huh? Can't wait. Yeah, that, I don't don't spoil it for me if you know what's going to happen. I want I want to <laughs> I want to get it fresh. That's just a t just a yeah. teaser. <laughs> we'll talk to you all in January. Take care. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play.